broadband internet service providers in real simple syndication are proud to bring you Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. That over there is Jordan. And that over there is Carlin. And the film we're going to be covering this time around is a 2010 film called Spork. Spork, yes. And if you are tracking with our previous record in terms of films, Spork is most likely a horror film. Is that right, Carlin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Totally the opposite. It's more of like a coming-of-age comedy music mix. Extravaganza. Yeah. Um, And this is actually a fan pick. Yes, this was picked uh, when when I originally sent out requests for movies to watch um, on the the Netflix Google Plus community. Uh, C. Paul Courtney actually suggested sport. They said that it was a really great movie and that we should go ahead and take a watch. So that is what we did. So, uh, yeah, this movie was uh, put out in 2010, as Carlin said. It was uh, directed, it was a little bit of, it was an indie movie. Um, So there were a lot of uh, smaller companies that had a hand in it. Uh, Really, it was the brainchild of the director, who also wrote it and I believe produced it as well, uh, J.B. Gorman, or Gooman Jr. Uh, And I'm probably totally messing up his name there. But, um... Uh, JB has been involved in a lot of different projects, mostly as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, according to his um, his personal website, he does have he has some documentary work, oh. but I think it's mostly um, documentaries that he's released into the wild. So there's no real information about that on on IMDb uh, in terms of that. But some of the different films that he's acted in include uh, Dakota Sky, uh, and then Debs. And then also a uh, 2005 film called Starcrossed. Hmm. Uh, so, as you said, this is a coming of age story, um, mostly about uh, uh, young middle age, middle age, middle school aged yes. uh, uh, girls. Um, one young man in the film as well, but mostly two, two actually, yeah, two. Hmm. Forgot about Chunk. Chunk and Charlie. <laughs> yeah, um, but. Uh, for the actors for this movie was uh, Savannah Stalen, I believe you pronounce her last name. Stalen, Stellen. Stellen, something like that. Either way. Um, she was the title character. Um, we never got her actual name. She was nicknamed Spork. Yeah, when Jordan texted me and was like, let's watch Spork, I was like, okay, what is that? And I assume maybe it was like a documentary about how Sporks came to be. Right, exactly. <laughs> but... The actual reason it's called Spork is because the main character is a hermaphrodite. Right, yes. So Spork is both a spoon and a fork, so, so hermaphrodite is male and female. Yeah, we'll just we'll just leave it at that and not go any further because, well, that's for another podcast. Um, so Savannah has... Um, done a whole bunch of different things, mostly aimed at a younger audience. But some of her other like roles that people would be familiar with would be, uh, she had uh, some small some parts on Without a Trace and also ER, hmm. and she was also in the movie Family Stone. Uh, another character, um, and the characters' names are interesting, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this more later. Um, is uh, Sydney Park, and she was the character Tootsie Roll. <laughs> on the yeah, on this particular uh, thing, 
Uh, and her some of her other roles include CSI New York, um, the Sarah Sarah Silverman show, hmm. and that's so Raven. Got it. Yep, yep. And um, then there was uh, another girl. Rachel G. Fox as Beck, Betsy Biatch. Yes, yes. Ugh. The names on this movie are just thrilling. Yeah. Um, and she was in uh, the adventures, the new adventures of old Christine. Uh, she also had a little bit a, uh, in Alias, and she's appeared in a TV movie called Zombie Night. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, it was pretty much it was there was a whole bunch of different small companies that came together to to actually release the movie uh, it was distributed by underhill entertainment so that's pretty much the rundown of um spork in terms of uh, the the nitty-gritty of the details and who's in it and everything like that and if you couldn't read into it uh this is jb gooman jr's first feature-length film directing and writing yes he had directed and written some sh- and, and he's written done, some shorts. Yeah, he's but. done some shorts and some documentary work. Um, also, there's some music videos on his on his website and stuff like that. So yeah, well, music videos seem very appropriate because a lot of the time during the film Spork, it seemed like a music video. Mm. The way uh, sequences were shot with because there, there's a lot of dancing in the film and a lot of music with the dancing on. There's it. a lot of music and dancing, and there's also um, a lot of very stylized shots. Like uh, at one point, the girl Spork is seen walking her dog. Mm-hmm. And um, and it looks very much like it's out of a music video with yeah. the way that it's choreographed. And yeah, everything. it's like slow motion and she's skipping and it, yeah, it looks so music video. So let, let's go ahead and and, and let, let's go ahead and give our initial opinions of the movie because I think that's going to shape how the rest of this uh, discussion will go. So, um, what what do you think of the movie overall and just in general? Kind of in the middle on the film. Uh, there are a lot of things that I really enjoyed about it. Like, I actually enjoyed the dancing scenes that were like a music video because I've always liked music videos in general, the way they're shot and they're very kind of like energizing and fun and there was a lot of that in it which was nice. There were some good things that the film had to say. There were also... Well, there wasn't a whole lot of good acting, but there were a few actors that did a, a pretty good job. Savannah, um, in and of herself, did the best yeah, in the acting. Yeah, yeah. The film overall had a it had a certain charm to it. It was very much like Napoleon Dynamite, but a lot cruder and with a different age group. Yes. Um, and one of one of the things that hit me immediately in the film is their music. They're using what's called chip tunes, which are pieces of music created by like eight bit music uh video game music uh so there was a lot of i mean obviously there was more to the music than just like 8-bit video game sounds but there was a lot of that in the music which sounded really cool and you know being a product of the 80s myself it was very nostalgic and i was just like oh man chip tunes that's so cool so it it really fit into the film to make it more quirky mm-hmm. So that's kind of my overall feeling. But, oh, on the bad side, other than some of the bad acting, they used a lot of stereotypes, which the funny thing about that, well, ironic thing about that, is this film is basically about people who are different being treated better, yet when we have different people in the film, they're represented by terrible stereotypes. <laughs> so that was uh, very hypocritical uh, in my in my estimation. And... A lot of what they had to say was pretty tired yeah. with the film. There wasn't a whole lot of 
anything new here. Yeah. I mean, I'll agree with a lot of what you said. I, I It does feel like a retread of Napoleon Dynamite. And I will be honest, I didn't find a lot appealing about Napoleon Dynamite to begin with. Oh, I liked it a lot. I mean, I thought... I, there, there are some things about Napoleon Dynamite that I think are good. But the thing about Napoleon Dynamite in films like Juno... Um, which is of a similar vein in terms right. of storytelling, is that they try too hard to be quirky. They're not quirky in and of themselves. It feels like that's an extra veneer that's put on it to add postmodern irony to the actual viewing experience. Which really, I mean, you should let the story stand on its own rather than try and sugarcoat it, essentially. Well, what I do like about things like Napoleon Dynamite and probably... Part of the aspect I did like about um, Spork is they are character pieces, pretty much. And I've always really enjoyed character pieces because it's a it's usually a very in-depth look at, at a person who is not the norm, who is who has a very interesting take on life. Yeah. And that's definitely in Spork, and that's definitely like definitely, definitely in Napoleon Dynamite. He's a very unique character. Right. Um, very kind of avant-garde with the way he thinks and acts and everything so. yeah well no i mean i definitely i def i personally really like character studies and i think that um that there is a definitely a definite strong place about um where the character study should fit in into cinematography in general because honestly character is the thing that makes the story work if you yeah. don't have an interesting character then you're not going to have an interesting movie at all. So I, I think my concern, though, is that when you um, don't let the character be the most interesting thing about the movie. And here I felt a lot of the aspects of the movie um, in terms of the, like the mu music uh, video aspects of it and everything were a little too on the nose. Okay. You know, where it's like, it's detracting, they're letting the production values of the, of the movie itself detract from the character whose story they're trying to tell. Okay. Um, yeah, I can see that. So, I mean, it's like, one of the things that I think of in terms of really good character studies, it's also a bit of an ensemble piece, but it has a lot of character study moments, is the TV show Freaks and Geeks, which is around the same age... Uh, for uh, the characters and everything. And you got like great characters like um, um, Pedro the Dwarf comes out and you know, they it's all, all about these teenagers and how they're learning to deal with lives as the social outcasts and everything like that. And so like you said, this, this story has a lot of those similar aspects to it, but it also has that extra level of we're going to make the production values more important than the characters. Um, so yeah. I found some of those things a little less than enjoyable. I liked a lot of it. I thought um, that the character of Spork in and of it herself was a very interesting character and someone who deserved to have a movie made about her. Right. Uh, and was very well acted. Very well acted. Yeah, Savannah Stellan did a, a fantastic job with that character, um, and, and there there were a lot of cute and funny mo mo moments in the movie. Like I loved this the first scene where um, where Spork and uh, Tootsie Roll are talking on the phone with each other, and you realize 
about two-thirds of the way through the conversation that they're only about 100 feet apart in just separate campers that they're yeah, living. Yeah, because they both live in a trailer park. Right, they both live in a trailer park, and they live, like, right next to each other. So you can see Tootsie Roll in the window of, uh, of uh, Spork's bedroom, and it, that's pretty funny. Yeah, which the interesting thing um, is that when the, when the film starts, they really hammer down... Um, how outcasty and odd uh, Spork is because the first bit you see of her, she's sleeping in a pile of clothes. Basically, she gets up out of it. She's wearing 3D glasses. Yeah. So, and she's got her hair's like all frizzy and crazy. And so, the first impression you get of this main character is she's probably an outcast. You know, because you see that she's middle school age. It's, yeah. That's very easy to see. And then you see, you get the idea from the inside of her room that that is a trailer in a trailer park and then she like puts on her uh, backpack for school and the books just fall out the bottom it rips open they fall out so you are just like oh she's white trash yeah um so and her brother spit is white trash too but he was actually a really fun character in a lot of ways he was because he was kind of he's a drug dealer yeah and he was kind of playing that typical like white trash i don't really give a crap i'm gonna do drugs and that type of person, but then in the end, he gets a little touchy feely, yeah. and 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 you can you can really see even in the beginning of the movie that he really cares about his sister. Yeah, yeah, you know, and essentially their dad left when when they were little, and their mother passed away, and ironically enough was buried off to the side in the trailer park, yeah. which the legality of that is questionable. <laughs> uh, at best. At best, yeah. yeah. So. But so he's essentially he's a drug dealer, but he's the only one who's raising his sister essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he is he's kind of the the white trash with a heart of gold type guy. Yeah. Um, and there is a really touching moment that he comes in and kind of like pep talks Spork and is kind of like I love you and yeah. you know you're just like mom and like really talks her up and that's kind of breaking from the character that he otherwise portrays throughout the film. Yeah. So that that was good. Uh, one of his best lines was, um, "Spork was trying to figure out um, if if she had um, if she was having feelings for another character," and uh, she she goes to ask her brother about this, and he goes, "Spork, are you pregnant?" And he she goes, "No," and he, he's like, "Well, did you get someone pregnant?" <laughs> no. Yeah. Which speaks to something else, which is. I know, Jordan, this kind of irked you a bit. The whole hermaphrodite, hermaphrodite idea of Spork in the film yeah. um, seems to not matter as much to the actual film itself. It just seems like it was kind of put there as a to be a joke from time to time. It, it seems like it was a bit of a joke. And, and, you know, there are enough things about a person... To who, make them different. To make them different yeah. without having to, to talk about you know, how their chromosomes are lined up. Right. You know, and as as a person, Spork seems to be a very intelligent, very accepting, very open individual with people who are willing to get close to her. Now, with people like Betsy Biatch and her, and her crew of, 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 bitches. of bitches. They call them Betsy, Betsy Biatch and the bitches. Um, <laughs> she's, she's very closed-mouthed, and she doesn't want anything to do with that, which is, you know, something that you think is actually pretty admirable because why put up with the quote-unquote cool kids yeah. when all they have to give is trash 
the the thing about the uh, hermaphrodite aspect of it is I understand that with these films you want to portray the person as appropriately right. outcast. Um, but I think that's done enough in the beginning of the film when you see how she wakes up at her home. You know, she lives in a trailer park. She lives in kind of squalor within the trailer park. She sleeps with 3D glasses on for whatever reason. Her yeah. hair is very frizzy and she doesn't do anything about it. She has braces. She wears like a, a one of those like headgear, yeah, some headgear at yeah. night. You know, I feel like that's enough. Mm -hmm. To go the extra step and make her hermaphrodite, I feel, is just kind of trying to beat people over the head with the, this person's different than, yeah. than everyone else, and they're going to be picked on. Right. And it also, it also does um, something where it just gives Betsy Biatch and the bitches, you know, uh, the opportunity to make physical like physically crass gestures mm -hmm. and to and to comment about you know this type of thing there is one one moment that makes it kind of touching when they're in the the human anatomy class yeah sex ed yeah and they're talking about the different re reproductive cycles and of the ma the male and the female which is very interesting to see because Sport feels very out of place and uncomfortable, and she doesn't know where in the, where she fits in in this binary scheme of things. But I mean, there's not enough of that kind of thing in the movie to really make it worth introducing into the character. Yeah, uh, yeah, I yeah, I agree. But yeah, the one good thing about that whole sex ed ordeal with right. being a hermaphrodite is you're seeing her just kind of the look on her face and when when the teacher's going over you know the penis and the vagina and yeah. all that stuff <clears throat> and you can just kind of see in her face she's like well you know all these kids around me are learning right now about their sexuality about who they are and what gender role they're supposed to have in society right i don't fit into any of those right so really she's truly alone at that point because she's going to have to figure out for herself what her sexuality is going to be and what her gender role is going to be in society. Yeah. So the implications of what it is are pretty cool and profound in that case, but I'm not so sure how intentional that the, was. the depth I thought yeah. was. Well, I, I think I think you and I are reading a lot more into that scene right. than what was actually intended. Of course, we might just be... Because it might have just been a scene to show how ostracized she really right. was. Because the main thing they focus on is... She's doing the um, the slides, not slides. Um, it was transparencies. Yeah, the transparencies. That's the word I was looking for. The transparencies of the penis and the the vagina and stuff. Yeah. And while she's switching them, they're like the penis is going over a female anatomy. Right. So that's like symbolizing. Oh well, that's what spork is. You know, she's yeah. got a penis and a vagina. So, uh. so I mean, I think that is what they were really trying to focus on. But you can. Read more into it like we right, did. And right. like I said, I don't know how much of that was intentional by uh, Mr. JB. So, but um, yeah, the the whole hermaphrodite thing is kind of overblown. But so are a lot of the other characters. Like we talked about stereotypes really being used. You know, there's a guy and his name is Chunk who she meets. And he's Asian and he goes, Chunk, like chink, but Chunk. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, why do you have to say that? Right. Second of all, he goes after school to um, work without getting paid 
for his mother at a Chinese restaurant. Right. It's like, okay, the Asian child has a mother who runs a Chinese restaurant. Very stereotyped. Well, and it also, it kind of made um, his mother out to be kind of the dragon lady stereotype. Yeah. Yes, that too. And then you have her friend who lives next door to her, Tootsie Roll, who is very good at dancing. She um, is all into putting Afro Sheen on her hair and is very outspoken about it. And her mannerisms and her talk is very, very, very exaggerated. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole lot of stereotyping going on there. She calls everyone ho. Yeah. You know, things like that. Um, you know, even the white, the, the prissy white girls in the film, um, they're, they're rich and yeah. they dress a certain way and they're so bitchy and, you know, their click works the way that stereotypically the white prissy clicks are supposed to work and... It's like somebody watched all of the teen, all of the all of the teen coming of age movies, and said, "We, I want to have all of this, but more." Right. You know, turned up to eleven. Yeah, turn it, turn it up to eleven, indeed. But the thing is, with a film like this, where you're trying to drive home, we all need to get along type thing, where this this main character is so ostracized, and a bunch of the other characters are so ostracized, and in the end, it's like you know. You should accept who you are, no matter who you are. Um, to use these characters for that message and make them such stereotypes yeah. is hypocritical for what you're trying to say. And it actually destroys the point of the movie in a lot yeah. of ways. So, JB, bad move on that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, this is a small indie movie that, you know, he probably... In terms of the actual story, they probably didn't have a lot of oversight from an executive or a producer, you know. So, I mean, a lot of it feels like it's coming directly from the writer, you know. And so that, that makes it even more confusing because, you know, I, I, I understand that JB in and of himself um, identifies as being homosexual. No, okay. I, 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 I read a couple art, uh, a couple interviews with him, and, and one of them, to, to quote what he says, um, not using this in a derogatory way, he said that he's as gay, gayer than Peter Pan. Okay. You know, so he definitely identifies with this type of thing. And he actually, one of the interesting things is that it seems like he's kind of trying to make himself, or trying to make Spork in his own image, mm -hmm. except being, being intersexed. Because... Um, one thing that he talked about in this interview that's an important part about the movie is that Spork loves the movie The Wiz. Yeah. And she thinks that's the only version of The Wizard of Oz that there actually is. Which is a story that uh, JB says that was how he was actually raised. Uh, because he was, um, he was the only kid of his ethnicity. I believe he, he identifies as white, um, but I think he originally is Persian. Okay. Um, so... Um, he said that he was the only white kid who grew up in a black neighborhood, and so he always identified with The Wiz and didn't realize that there was another movie or book called The Wizard of Oz until somebody else told him. Which, something that I kind of thought in the context of the movie with Spork only knowing The Wiz and not knowing The Wizard of Oz, was that it was kind of her showing the way she thinks of not really seeing color as an issue. Yeah. You know, like, she can easily identify with The Wiz, and it's all black actors. Right. And it's it's a black-made film, 
and there she is as white as can be white trash in fact right and you know she's just like oh I love that movie that's like my favorite movie and it's the whiz like having no problem identifying with just a person like people in general like yeah. she doesn't see color yeah and the, actually the not seeing color thing is also um, involved with actually never mind this isn't not seeing color this is the opposite of, of, of that Seeing color with, uh, there's a moment where someone pulls out a handful of Skittles. Yes. And they're like, which ones are your favorite? And she's like, oh, the green ones. And they're like, well, why the green ones? Well, because without, because they have so much color. Like, without the green ones, right. with all the rest of them, their colors are too drab and they almost look like no color at all. Right. And they're like, oh, yeah, they are all too similar. To basically say that you need those different vibrant people added into the mix of everyone else who's not to make it a like a complete society basically yeah. to to add color right. like true color to and the a, society and a lot of her friends well the people that she comes to identify with as friends are those people who add color to the world like yeah. um, Tootsie Roll with her dancing and everything like mm -hmm. that is a little bit overblown uh, in terms of character development but she is someone who is a very vibrant person um, and seems to really enjoy who she is as a person Chunk um, is a, a tall, overweight. It looks like he's a, a chunk is supposed to be a boy, but he wears earrings and has long hair like a girl. Yeah. You know, and also uh, an, an interesting thing is I think um, when his when Chunk's mother speaks to Chunk, um, she calls him Chunk a fat girl. Yeah. Which was an interesting interesting little take on that particular issue. And then there's Charlie, the boy who. Um, really likes Spork and enjoys hanging out with her and invites her over to to watch Justin Timberlake videos. And he has pictures of Justin Timberlake all, all over, over his, his wall. And he has two dads. He, yeah, he, he, he comes from a family where um, he, he was raised by two two men. And that's why he is ostracized. Right. And also a lot of time a lot of the people in the at the school claim that he is like his like his father's homosexual. Mm -hmm. Um and you know, outward appearances and interest in Justin Timberlake aside, he, it, it's kind of questionable whether he is or where he isn't. Right. It, yeah, it's very much ambiguous in the film. Um, but this is another instance of, you know, here's a character who everyone's calling gay and his he has two fathers and everything, and they're actually making him seem like he is gay from the characterization yeah. that they have. Like, oh my god, Justin Timberlake, and he won't shut up about Justin Timberlake, and oh, I'm going to show you his dance moves, he's perfect, blah, blah, blah. So it would lead you to believe from a lot of those tendencies that he is gay, the way he dresses, the way he talks, the way he loves just Justin Timberlake, all this stuff. So another instance of using stereotypes right. once again. Well, and also the interesting thing is that Charlie tries to disassociate himself from that by using terms for homosexuals in a pejorative way, mm -hmm. you know, which is really that which is really interesting, you know, because you would think that someone who was raised in that kind of family would be perfectly fine with that and would not use that kind of language in, in a way that they would be would consider hurtful to their own parents, mm -hmm. you know, so that was a really interesting take what is like oh, is this like teenage rebellion or is this someone who's trying to come to terms with who they are you know it, it wasn't something that was easily identified yeah so the whole thing with this film is 
you know, you you get in the beginning how weird Spork is and how she's an outcast, and yeah. it's really just kind of like her trials and tribulations throughout. Um, there's nothing too crazy or fantastical that goes on. You know, she meets Chunk, she meets Charlie, she meets Toot she's been friends already with Tootsie Roll, and you know, these are all just people to kind of further her story to right. say you know, continue being you, and we're here to support you, and, you know, we're going to do what we can to keep you being you. Right. Um, but ultimately what she's after is trying to find a way to be as accepted as possible. And she has decided that um, her mother, who has passed away, was actually transported into late-night television commercials, infomercials. Yes. Um, which, is, which is one of the really disturbing parts of the whole story. I mean, because one of these infomercials is a, a very trim, fit, beautiful young woman who's saying, I've lost, what, 150 pounds in five days? Yeah. You know, it's... It, well, and again, this film is prone to exaggeration. Yeah, oh, yeah, a lot of it. Um, Hence so, the stereotypes. Yes. And, and the hermaphrodite ordeal. And, right, yeah. right. And what we, we didn't even touch on, like, the Christian's but that's, yeah, that's another that's thing. that's true. Um, but, I mean, there, there, there are so many stereotypes in this movie, it's really disheartening. Um, but they, they, the, this infomercial is like, this Spork identifies with this model who is obviously just reading off of a, off of a cue card with her mother. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, Mom, I want to be beautiful just like you. And she finds out that the money that it would cost to have a down payment for this process um, is the same amount of money or just a little bit less than what she would get if she won the school's dance-off. Mm -hmm. So she wants to do that. Yeah, she wants to do that. Um, but I will say real quick, the interesting thing about that infomercial that I picked up on is the that dog. they said... Are you alone, ugly, ethnic-looking, and sad? Yeah, ethnic-looking. It's like, what? Yeah. So, I think that was, I mean, that was obviously an intentional choice by JB to put in the script to be like, you know, your common white America, they look at someone who's ethnic-looking and kind of be like, well, that's not attractive. You know, what's, what's considered attractive by society is skinny white females yeah with blonde hair and blue eyes yeah basically like that's the optimal sexiness hotness whatever you want to say so i mean that was it was a little um interesting when that part came up because i'm listening to it and it's like alone ugly and it's like ethnic looking and i'm like well i okay. mean th th this movie isn't afraid to go in, into the ethnic territory either right. because i mean a little bit later, there are some characters that break out in drag, in not drag, but in blackface. Yeah, I know. I was yeah, like, I saw oh, that. Oh, oh my and, god! And there are a lot of films that have taken heat for doing things like that. Yeah. I mean, when Tropic Thunder came out, and um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character did blackface for the whole thing, uh, there was a lot of outcry about that. Yeah, so. I I actually never saw Tropic Thunder because of oh, that. it's funny. It's actually funny. I, I, I'm I'm sure it is, but I mean, it's just like. I don't know. I mean, especially considering that it was a movie about the Vietnam War era, and then you have a character in blackface during the like, civil rights era, and right. it, it was something to me that was a little insensitive. I can see that. Um, but anyway, g getting back to Spork. Um, it, it, uh, okay, about Spork, though. About, uh, I'm going to go back to the hermaphrodite thing yes. real quick. I did note to myself 
I've never seen a film before that has had a hermaphrodite in it. No, uh, no. So that is new. It is, it is something that is that is new. I mean, so that's that's. I guess that's a little bit in favor of ah. JB doing that because it's it is kind of new ground. But like we said, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary, and I mean, it doesn't add anything to the story. I mean, it's, if you want to say then that it was interesting because it was the only that that's something that's new. I mean, then you could say movies like um, The Protector, uh, the the movie that um, uh, Tarantino brought over from the States that star, stars Tony Jaa, that it has someone who is um, a transvestite. Okay. So, I mean, like, movies like that, it do, it's not enough to make the character interesting by making them of an alternate sexual orientation you also you know there has to be something to the character fortunately with sports there is something to the character that makes her interesting so um yeah. you know, to me to me I, I as someone who is always a part of the nerd culture nerd culture when i was younger was something that my parents didn't really understand so they didn't understand like the movies and the books and and the music that i was into um, so it was something that we had to, to work on and, and, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons, especially in my subculture, was considered to be really scary. Yeah, well, because there was that whole tying it to, like, Satanism and right, stuff like right, that. Right, 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 exactly. So, I mean, even with that, I can understand being an outsider, and I can understand where you come from for that well, type of thing. And I, I think you could do the same I think thing. Almost everyone for one reason can identify with that, and that's one of the things that makes the film kind of frustrating for me is because everyone can identify with that already. You don't have to blow things out of proportion and be so ridiculous with some of these characters to get the point across to people. Like people aren't that stupid. Everyone's experienced it, right. and they can identify. Yeah. One of the things about some of the stereotypes that are presented in the movie, especially the stereotypes of the African-American community, is that it seems like, you know, Spork wants to be a part of this community. She wants to be involved. She's excited when Tootsie Roll invites her to go to uh, the Booty Ballroom. Yeah. Which is one of, which is one of the dancing, one of the clubs for, for African-Americans in that area. Um, so she goes in she's immediately treated with the same kind of ostracism that she receives from the snobby white girls that are in the bitch clique. So it's something that, you know, is interesting to see that even if you are um, considered to be part of an outside group or a group that is non-normative, you're still going to push away people who you see as not belonging in your particular group. Yeah. Um, and the... This is a good segue for... I was going to talk about this this stuff going on at the booty ballroom. Um, one of the things about it, when you get inside of the booty ballroom, which is just very odd for me to be saying. I just I hate the name of that. Yeah, it's a horrible <laughs> name. Um, There's a lot of clown-themed stuff. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, the first thing I notice is that the lighting is bad to the point where anything that's kind of like in the dark in the film yeah. is has a green tinge to it where yeah. the, where there's actually light. So that actually did not look good. No. They could have done a much better job with the lighting on that. But moving past that, uh, in this club, I'm just going to say the club. I don't want to say a name anymore. I'm done with that. <laughs> so in that club, there's tons of dancing going on and everyone has like 
partial clown makeup on and they're doing like these this crazy dancing and I was like my first thought is what is going on like why is everyone like clown painted I don't get it and then I saw the DJ was clown was totally clowned out and yeah. I was just like something clicked in my head and I was like this looks familiar to me there's a documentary and it's called Rise R-I-Z-E and I haven't seen the documentary, but I watched the trailer, and it's one I've been meaning to see, and I know a little bit about it. So I did a little extra research on it before we did this podcast, because I recognized that that clown guy who was the DJ in the club was from the documentary Rise. Hmm. So who he is, his name is Tommy the Clown. Um, I forget his real name. His real name's something Thomas, but obviously his real name's not Tommy the Clown. Right. <laughs> so if it was, I would. I, I, I think that would be amazing, though. Yeah. So Rise the documentary is all about Tommy the Clown and the other people who are kind of his followers, people he's friends with, who together started um, this clowning style is what they called it of dancing, mm -hmm. which is very like kind of like spastic, frantic. Um, exaggerated dancing uh, and that's actually over time evolved into what is now known as crumping oh really yes so that whole documentary if anybody wants more info on how all that started and I myself want it I looked and unfortunately it's not on Netflix instant Ooh. so I was like okay I'm gonna have to put it on my DVD queue and get it out at some point so everyone check that out if you want to know more about it but that explains that style of dancing in the film. So obviously, JB knows about this clowning style or crumping style and was able to reach out and get Tommy the Clown to be in the film and then have his style of dance represented in the yeah, film. Yeah, that's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, it, and it was very interesting to me. Uh, that was one of the most interesting things about this film, I think. When, when, was, when was Tommy the Clown developing this? What? It's a good question. I didn't get that information. Yeah. And I'm sure you can get that out of the documentary. Out of the documentary. I, oh God, I, w I wish the documentary was available on streaming or on instant because my plan, if it was, was to watch it right after watching Spork so I could have more of a background on the crumb. You know what? I, I, the thing is that the movie, the movie Spork in and of itself is very weird because you can't place the time frame. Yeah, because you get a lot of 80s hair. You get 80s hair and then 90s rap. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very um, time. It's confused. a time time warp, and there's no cell phones in the movie. Yeah, true. I didn't so, think about that. So I mean, I'm almost wondering, and I also think I mean they were using transparencies rather than PowerPoint. Yeah, I'm wondering if it was supposed to represent like 1992, 1993, something where you know that type of thing would have just been making the transition over. Or is it supposed to cover the 80s, 90s, and 2000s? It could be, because, I mean, uh, a lot of talk about Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, late, uh, mid to late 90s. Mid to li late 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, on, on the topic of, of music in general in this film, there's a ton of it, yeah. first off. But it seems like it's a juxtaposition of white pop music versus hip-hop music. Yeah. And that's who's battling in this film. And in the end, that's truly who's battling because it's the bitches, Betsy Biatch and her bitches, doing uh, Britney Spears music at the, the dance-off at school. And then it's um, 
spork as she's been taught to do some crumping and yeah which that kind of dance doing a hip-hop style of dancing yeah early break dancing it seemed yeah like. yeah she and it was actually the smart and interesting thing about how she learned how to dance is she was said she was good at twister so they used a twister board yeah. to tell her where to put her hands and feet and i will say to jb good job on putting that in because that is a very clever way to have gotten an otherwise uh, rhythmless child to be able to do such dance moves. Yeah. I thought it was really. And also, it cool. seemed like it seemed like at at one point Tootsie Roll gave up on actually spinning the wheel and saying yellow yellow left foot and just started telling her which colors to do. So she was able to get the choreography down by using the twister mat. And um, I don't know if they used a, a double or if it was actually Stellman doing the 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 dancing, but it it was a double. It, yeah, it, it was a double. Because you could tell at certain points I was looking for it, and you can usually tell by the shots that they choose to mm -hmm. use if they're closer in and not yeah. trying to not show the head much. They didn't. They tried not to show her head at all. Yeah. And when they were doing some of the shots, I think mainly ones from above, you could see it was a different, little, slightly different body type. Yeah. So um, it was a double. Yeah, but I mean, she she they really broke out the dance moves on that, and that was interesting because it was the juxtaposition of like you were saying, the, of black culture meets white culture, mm -hmm. and so it was it was showing. And what was what was interesting was that Tootsie Roll got all of her friends together um, to to see like the dancing because the way that the and, and and this was ridiculous. The way that the con the that the actual dance scene happened was that the the um, toastmaster, I guess you could call him, the the person in charge of ceremonies, was like, yeah, the way that this will be decided by is by how loud your friends are. Yeah. You know, and well, I mean that kind of plays into the whole school is a popularity contest right theme, which you know I can't. I can't fault it too much for that, in my opinion, just because that is what this film is about, is about the cliques and the popularity of school. So, I mean, that was okay in my mind. Yeah. I mean, is it just me, or was that the same actress who was... From Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko, yeah. yeah. She was the head of the dance team in yeah. Donnie Darko. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I kept on watching this thinking, Sparkle Motion. Yeah, Sparkle yeah. Motion. Yeah. Which, Donnie Darko is a film we should do as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, and actually... While we're while we are talking about other people in the film, there's a guy named Keith David who's in the film, and he plays the um, uh, the phys ed teacher. Yeah, he's been in a lot of films, and I I was like, God, he looks so familiar. But I can't even like I've seen so much stuff where he pops up. I looked on IMDb, and he has 225 acting credits. Really? Yes, he's been in a lot of stuff, and. This is so close to my heart. He did voice acting for the Mass Effect uh, games. Oh, awesome. And I was like, oh my god, he did voice acting for the Mass Effect video games. He is awesome. He is awesome. And he, Lord knows he has enough phys ed whistles to last him his entire life. Yeah. That was one of the... I, I don't know if that was supposed to be a visual gag or what, but I mean, he had like 20 of those around his neck. Yeah, I, I think that was meant to be just a gag, but... That's kind of like not very creative. No, but I mean, it, it, it was interesting to 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 see like the different uh, dances that they had come up with because you could tell that the biatch and the bitches 
did not put a lot of effort into their Britney Spears routine at no, all. No. Yeah. And actually, the lead girl was pregnant. Yeah. During it. Well, I mean, she wasn't actually pregnant in the film. She was, she had put something, something under, under her, her costume to look pregnant. Yeah, I was wondering <coughs> about that because it was like this weird transition where she wasn't and then she was. And it was like, there was almost one cut where she was wearing her shirt tied like the other girls were. Yeah. And then it was like tucked in with a bulge. Yeah, and I was actually waiting for that to matter in the and, film. And it didn't. Yeah, and it did. It was a really a moment of like, okay, I don't really understand why they did that. I, I think probably it was something that wound up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, probably. And, and that kind of stuff happens in films. All the time, all the time. One other thing that I really wanted to touch on is the fact that uh, when you're seeing outside, a lot of the time, if there's sun out and clouds, the sun and clouds are drawn. Yes. Which I thought was cool because uh, it visually looks interesting, mm -hmm. but also it really puts you in the mindset of this is a film to kind of be seen through a child's mind. Um, this is a middle schooler's world, so it's not quite grown up. You're not seeing things as they truly are. You're seeing things through the, the child, well, totally child, but like teenager's mind right. pretty much. Right, the, um, the adolescent's mind. Uh, it was one of those things that interested me because of the connection to this movie with the, the story of the Wizard of Oz. Okay. You know, because um, it was like, you could, they're talking about the Wizard of Oz and, you know, the magic and the fantasy of that. And then, you know, the way that Spork was treating adulthood and looking pretty and everything like that, it was like that was the magical land that they could go to. So, like, drawing in the, the clouds and the sun like that kind of gave it a more fantasy feeling and you you started to notice it more when spork was feeling happy you know true so i think it was kind of like a representation of her seeing how the world could be a magical place even if she is who she is in this world and it really did help to give you the kind of whimsical fantastical um tone right to the film right um yeah because the, you know it's it's not real life obviously and it's not supposed to really be portraying real life too much um so that's important but also i'll say that they they did a really good job in the film with like wardrobe and with scenery and colors in the scenes to really kind of amp that whole whimsical fantastical yeah. uh it was a very brightly colored movie yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's i think that's kind of one of the things that i'm that i'm getting when i'm talking about it having a certain charm visually it had a hell of a lot of charm to mm -hmm. me um except you know like some of the stuff we talked about like the bad lighting in the darker scenes right. but um overall it had a very nice visual charm one one thing i wanted to mention was was chunk at first for like chunk appeared in the very first scene of the movie where he tells her just essentially to be happy with who she is yeah and then he he doesn't appear until about half an hour through the, the movie no, he appears again when she's actually uh, in phys ed class, and she decides to face the the bitches. Right. And she throws a a basketball at one and breaks her nose, because he pops up in a thought in bubble, a thought bubble well, in, in a like crayon drawn thought bubble, and he's okay. He's a big guy, and he's eating like a giant, a giant sandwich, sandwich, which I'm kind of like, okay, here's a stereotype ordeal again. Yeah. And he's just basically says to her in her mind like don't give a crap like be strong stand up for yourself whatever and then that's when she gets the courage to throw you know a ball but i thought for a long time in the movie 
Um, until until we actually go to his mother's restaurant, I thought that Chunk was in her he- in her head as oh. kind of a fantasy character. Interesting, because, because there is one moment where he she's talking to him, and then she looks away, she looks back, and he's disappeared, yeah. and then he comes up behind her. Yeah, and also no one else interacts with Chunk That's true. until the end, though. until the very end, and then. And then with the scene in the restaurant and then the scene at the very end, it's like, oh, yeah, Chunk is a real character in the movie. He just doesn't show up in a lot of the other scenes. It probably actually would have been a lot more interesting and cooler if he was a figment of her imagination. Actually, how cool would it have been if all of the other vibrant, interesting characters were figments of her imagination within the film? And Well, I mean, then that would would be kind of depressing because... um, Unless you want to exclude Charlie from that, that means she was totally alone all the time, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but it would have been an awesome story, and it would have been more of a fantasy story. Um, I wonder. I, I'm just thinking off the top of my head at this point, but I, I I wonder if there if you put if you put Spork in the position of Dorothy, do you think there are any characters, other characters that correlate with? Characters from the uh, the Wizard of Oz or the Wiz that would that would match up with the, uh, with like the Scarecrow or the Tin Man. Well, I actually have never seen the Wiz. I haven't either. I will um, admit, so, I have seen the Wizard of Oz um, a long time ago, long long time ago. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I guess I could see in a way Chunk as like the lion because he gets her. To, to have courage, right? Um, so he's kind of that portion of her, of being cowardly and then having courage. And I could see, I could see her brother Spit as the Tin Woodsman because he's the one who encourages her to have a heart. Yeah. At the very end, and also I could see Tootsie Roll as kind of um, the the Scarecrow. Because she encourages her to use her mind and think about how she can come about with the dance. That is and interesting. So that's an interesting way to look at the movie as a as a parallel with the Wizard of Oz story, in that regard. One of the other small things that I have forgotten to to mention, when um, Spork does her her main dance routine at the end at the dance off, she is wearing a Nintendo Power Glove, Power Glove yeah. which I was like. At first I saw it real quick and I was like, dude, is that a power glove? And then they show it close up and I'm like, that is a power glove. That is so cool. So I just like the fact that that was in the film. I was yeah. just like, oh man, power glove. Yeah, so and cool. what was great was that like for her dancing routine and everything, they brought back those 3D glasses that she had always been yeah. wearing. Well, that was the quintessential moment where she's like, I'm going to put on onto myself everything that is truly me right. and go up there and present totally unfettered who I truly am to everyone and do my routine like that. Like, I'm proud to be Spork as Spork is. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. I, You know, I like that aspect of the film. Um, after she wins the dance-off and um, she's outside and the, the bitches come out and they are like, meh, 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 being bitchy, as they do, as bitches. <laughs> um, she, what I don't like is at that point is when something's supposed to kind of change, you know? Yeah. Typically, the bitches are supposed to be like, oh, well, we're sorry, you're actually cool, you came out and you did this great dance move or whatever. Um, what really happens is one of the bitches is about, well, the head bitch, she's about to be 
very, very mean to Spork. Yeah. And she says something, and then one of them steps away from the group and it looks at her and goes, you know what? Stop it. And she's just like, I'm sick of you type thing. Yeah. Which really was very forced and just kind of came out of nowhere. And right. then as if it couldn't get worse... Yeah. Chunk shows Chunk up. Chunk shows up and... And this girl looks at him and is like, hey, and he's like, I'm Chunk, like Chink, but Chunk. And then she's like, oh, okay, I think I like you. And they just walk away together. Yeah, and it's kind it's of like... It's like, what the hell is that? Yeah, it's... it's And that's one of those things that I was talking about with the forced quirkiness. Yeah. You know, that really kind of ruins the movie. Well, it was ways. like, and here for no reason. Yeah. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I think... I think Laura standing up to Betty or Betsy. Yeah, Betsy. Betsy, Laura standing up to Betsy would have been better if they had built a more like passive aggressive relationship between yeah. the two. But really, Laura was only really shown as Betsy's yes woman. Yeah, okay. there there is a little bit of tension at a few points, but it's not nearly enough for anyone to have a legitimate groundwork in their mind right. for what it's, happens at the end. Yeah, I mean, it's if it's there, it's it's so subtle you don't even notice it. Um, yeah, I mean, but I don't know. This film overall, I was very conflicted because there were a lot of things that I enjoyed, but there are a lot of things that I did not enjoy. You know, I think one of the best things to say about this movie is that it's one that makes you think. It does. You know, and and, and I was, when I, when I finished watching it, I I spent the rest of the day just pretty much thinking about this movie and like going, well, what what's good about it? What's bad about it? Were those bad choices intentionally made to make you think, right. you know, or were they just something that was done because of sloppy storytelling? And really, honestly, it could go either way. Um, I would like to think that it was done in a way to make you think about what's going on with the movie, but I don't feel that it was. Yeah, you don't know for sure. It's kind of like, it could very well be a situation where there's, you know, there are a lot of literary pieces of work where people will pick them apart and say like, oh, well, this means this in it. And you look at it and you're like, obviously the author was not thinking that in depth when they created it. So yeah. you're putting some sort of tacked on notion to it that you came up with half cocked. I mean, it's it's like I always, I've I've. I've developed this theory in my mind is that there are three different movies whenever you look at a piece of work. Um, there's the movie that the writer and director intended to make, there's the one that they actually committed to film, and then there's the movie that we all see and, and, and interpret ourselves. Right. And I, I really think that this was a better movie when, where it was, when it was in JB's head and where he was directing it mm -hmm. than it was when the final product came out. Yeah. I can see that. And then you want to, yeah, you want to know, like, how much stuff got cut from the film. Right. What What did the unedited version actually Yeah, it was only like? 80 minutes long, so there was a lot yeah, of stuff. a long film. It, that, that could have been on the floor. Um, even, though, even though it had, you know, such a short running time, it felt like a loose movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, but... Uh, it, at the same time, it really did kind of, like, keep the pace going. Yeah, it, it, did. It, it did have a good clip to it, um, so I do applaud it for that, because a lot of times those types of films, the character-driven films, have a tendency to really drag at parts. Yes. But this one did a really good job of just kind of, like, keeping things moving. And um, part of that may really have to do with the 
you know, music video style that JB has. Yeah. Because um, music videos, if you think about it, oh my God, talk about keeping things moving. Yeah. Let's talk about the last thing, um, the thing that, that Spork does for Tootsie Roll okay. at the very end of the movie. And, I, and then I think, I think we can probably wrap up at that point. But um, one of the reasons that Tootsie Roll even tells Spork about this dancing contest is because she wants to win the money so that she can go visit her father who's in prison. Again, another stereotype. Another stereotype. A terrible stereotype, yeah. let's be honest. I mean, come on. Why couldn't one of the rich white girl's parents be in jail? Yeah. I mean, it's just as likely. Well, let's not get into that. But, I mean, <laughs> uh, um, so... so she, she, um, You're at a loss for words. Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> Spork, is the, Spork is the second per group like entry to compete in the dance contest. Right. But they um, stop it there. And then they're like. just like, well, she wins. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is ridiculous. Um, but, you know, they they give the money to Spork. And Spork does a really selfless and nice thing by giving the money to Tootsie Roll so that Tootsie Roll can go visit her father in jail. Yeah. You know, and there's a really heartwarming moment at the end of the movie where Tootsie Roll is just hugging her dad and just sitting across from a table talking to him. And, like, it looks like it's the first conversation that they've had in a long time. Yeah. You know, and that to me, that to me was one of the redeeming moments of the entire movie was, you know, that, 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 uh, Spork would do that for her friend, you know, and, and at one point, I think it's right after this. Charlie asks her, well, why did you do that? And she said, because I'm her friend. And she and he's like, well, you've never had friends before. How do you know that was the right thing to do? And Spork says, it just felt right. Yeah. You know, and that that to me was probably the, the, the best message to take away from this. It's like, treat others the way that you would want to be treated. Yeah. Be a good person. Be a good person. Warm fuzzies. Well, I mean... <laughs> There is a certain warm, fuzzy aspect to it, but still. Well, I mean, ultimately, that's what you you could tell from the get-go of this film that that's where it was going to go. Oh, yeah, there was going to be a warm, fuzzy ending at the end. Yeah, I mean, that's just the tone of the film and the subject matter, you know. So, yeah. All right. Well, are we... uh, Is it that time? It is that time. I think we're both getting a little tired here. We've talked ourselves in the circles. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, this this movie is interesting to talk to, about. <laughs> to talk to. It could be interesting to talk to the film, too. So, Spork, how do you feel? <laughs> no answer, no answer. Let me play you some 8-bit music. Does Spork feel alone, ugly, ethnic-looking, and sad? Well, she definitely feels alone and ugly. <laughs> and sad. Well, would you like to take the lead on uh, rating this film? Yeah. We've talked so much about the issues that the film has and the writing, um, the stereotypes that are used, um, the how it shoots itself in the foot by trying to display a message of inclusiveness but yet being non-inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, I really... I really felt like some of the... some of the production... it was a little overproduced um, and some of the music was a bit intrusive in spots, especially, I know you liked the chip, the eight, eight, eight bit music, but I thought it was, I thought it was a bit intrusive in places personally. Per, I mean, that's more of a, that. 
it's more of a personal thing than anything else. So I really can't give this more than two and a half stars, and I think that's kind of being generous. Okay. Um, I did like the use of music in it. I like the use of a lot of the uh, music video sensibilities and the directing of it and a lot of the moments where it really did feel and and look like a um, a music video. Mm -hmm. um, I liked the pacing of it. It was very good. Some of the characters, well mainly Spork was really interesting. There were interesting aspects of other characters, but like we said, you know, the stereotypes were very annoying and kind of messed up. There are so many parallels though between this film and Napoleon Dynamite. This film was after Napoleon Dynamite. I don't remember what year Napoleon Dynamite was done, but I think it came out when I was in college. So yeah, it was like, like 2002. 2002, 2000, between 2002 and 2006. Yeah, somewhere in there. So Napoleon Dynamite was out well ahead of this film. So I really feel like JB kind of looked at Napoleon Dynamite and was like, I can do something similar and did something very similar. Um, has the same feel. But, you know, like we said, the colors that were used were very good. The design was very good. Um, I liked the end credits. They had a nice graphic over the end credits. Right. Um, but, you know... It's not a remarkable um, film. There aren't, you know, it's a really tired, you know, message. There, are, even though it's got a certain message, it's hypocritical at times with that message. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's there is a some sort of intangible to this film that is just so charming to me. Yeah. And maybe part of that's because it has enough quirky, funny moments and endearing moments, and it moves at a good clip that um, it, it keeps you engaged enough. So that said, as you can probably tell by the way I've been talking about it, it puts me somewhere in the middle. So I'm going to give it two and a half stars as well. Yeah. So overall for the podcast, two and a half stars for Spork. Um, not a horrible rating. We've given no. a lot more films worse ratings than that. Yeah. Hunger Games. Yeah. And what was the other one? And there was other one. Oh, Jingle All the Way. J Jingle All the Way. How could I forget about that one? I don't know. Maybe you wiped it from your mind. Yeah, probably. Uh, uh, I need to mementoize myself for that one. Oh, no, never mind, because that's long-term. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Then you'll just be watching Jingle All the Way, like, all the time. I'll wake up every day, and instead of feeling like my wife was just murdered, I feel like I just watched Jingle All the Way, which would probably be equivalent to that. All right, well, we're just going to go ahead and <laughs> let that be the last word. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Our theme music was provided by Sweet Wave Audio. To find more royalty-free music for your own projects, check out sweetwaveaudio.co.uk. And special thanks to Ariana Ramos for her graphic design savvy helping us with our album art. Visit our website at mostexcellentmovienight.com to listen to other episodes, give us your opinion, and share with us other movies you'd like to have reviewed. You can also contact us through our email address, mostexcellentmovienight.com at gmail.com. We would love to read them on the air. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, we would be your friends for life. For sure. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night, where movies are most excellent. This has been a Nerd Circle Podcast production.